Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. And welcome to the GFL Environmental Second Quarter Earnings Conference Call. All participants will be in listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please signal a conference specialist by pressing star key followed by zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. Please note this event is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Patrick DeVici, CEO and founder. Please go ahead. Thank you and good morning. I would like to welcome everyone to today's call and thank you for joining us. This morning we will be reviewing our results for the second quarter and providing our outlook for the remainder of the year. I am joined this morning by Luke Pelosi, our CFO, who will take us through our forward-looking disclaimer before we get into the details. Thank you, Patrick. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining. We have filed our earnings press release, which includes important information. The press release is available on our website. We've prepared a presentation to accompany this call that is also available on our website. During this call, we'll be making some forward-looking statements within the meaning of applicable Canadian and U.S. securities laws, including statements regarding events or developments that we believe or anticipate may occur in the future. These forward-looking statements are subject to a number of risks and uncertainties, including those set out in our filings with the Canadian and U.S. securities regulators. Any forward-looking statement is not a guarantee of future performance, and actual results may differ materially from those expressed or implied in the forward-looking statements. These forward-looking statements speak only as of today's date, and we do not assume any obligation to update these statements, whether as a result of new information, future events and developments, or otherwise. This call will include a discussion of certain non-IFRS measures. A reconciliation of these non-IFRS measures can be found in our filings with the Canadian U.S. Securities Regulators. I will now turn the call back over to Patrick, who will start off on page three of the presentation. Thank you, Luke. Our exceptional start to the year continued into the second quarter, allowing us to once again exceed expectations. Specifically, we, re we grew revenue by nearly 40% on a constant currency basis, adjusted EBITDA margin expanded 60 basis points, and adjusted free cash flow more than doubled. Thanks to the tireless dedication and capabilities of our more than 15,000 employees, we were once again able to demonstrate the power of our business model and our ability to execute on our stated growth strategy. In terms of organic growth, the quality of pricing we saw in Q1 continued to accelerate into the second quarter, where we saw solid waste pricing ahead of plan at 4.1%. Improved residential pricing, the recovery of price attracting commercial volume and strong price retention combined to yield this outcome. We remain encouraged with the path to see more than offsetting rising cost inflation through the underlying pricing opportunities we see in the business. Additionally, the inflationary environment should provide a boost to the pricing we see on CPI link contracts, a benefit that we will realize as we roll over into 2022. Solid waste volume growth was well ahead of expectations at 6.3%. The markets that were quicker to ease COVID-related restrictions saw the greatest volume recoveries. That being said, our Canadian business, which was subject to continued and in some cases enhanced COVID restrictions through most of Q2, saw 5.5% revenue increase 
from non-MRF processing volumes, an outcome that we think bodes well for future periods when existing restrictions are lifted. We're hopeful that Canada gets to such a stage soon, but at this point in the year, we think the benefits will be realized primarily in 2022. Commodity values once again provided a tailwind, although as we've disclosed, our sensitivity to price fluctuations continues to decrease as we progress on our strategic shift towards a fixed price processing model. Nonetheless, commodities will continue to provide a benefit if prices remain at current values for the remainder of the year, and we've updated our full-year outlook on that basis. Our liquid waste business showed significant recovery during the quarter, going organically nearly 14%, as the markets in which we operate began to recover. Consistent with our guidance, we saw significant operating leverage associated with the volume recovery. Our rigorous focus on quality of revenue and cost management drove nearly a 500 basis point EBITDA margin expansion over the prior period and furthers our progress towards the longer-term margin profile we expect for this segment. Recall that our infrastructure and soil remediation business posted positive organic growth in the second quarter of 2020, as the nature of the activity in that segment was the last to taper off at the onset of the pandemic. And what we're now seeing is a bit of last stop, last to restart, as the recovery of this segment is lagging the broader business by a quarter or two. We remain confident that the lag is nearly timing and that while delayed, the pent-up demand and additional stimulus from infrastructure spending will drive volume recovery that we expect will benefit us for the periods to come. In addition to organic growth, the second quarter also saw us advance several of other value creation initiatives. We successfully refinanced our highest coupon bond and realized nearly $17 million of annualized cash interest savings in doing so. We sold $60 million of non-core low-contribution assets and have identified several high-contribution opportunities into which we intend to deploy the capital. And finally, we continued executing on our M&A strategy. In addition to substantially furthering the regulatory process on the pair of your acquisition, we acquired eight small tuck-ins in the new landfill during the quarter. We expect to close a similar number of transactions in Q3 and remain highly optimistic in our ability to deploy an outsized amount of capital into M&A strategy in the back half of the year, considering the depth and quality of our pipeline. The strong first half results coupled with our confidence in the back half of the year are leading us to increase our full-year expectations for the business. Luke will walk through the details, but when you boil that down on a constant currency basis, we're increasing our guidance for revenue in EBITDA by 4-5%. We're increasing our adjusted free cash flow guidance by nearly 10%. But perhaps the most relevant of all, we are now guiding to the end of the year with an adjusted run rate free cash flow number of $610 million or better, which we think sets us up to exceed the multi-year guidance we laid out just six months ago. I know we're still a relatively new name for many of you, but this marks our sixth quarter as a public company. But what we've been doing, we did this quarter for a long time in the private markets, setting expectations for the business and meeting or exceeding them. we set on priority quarterly calls that we've assembled the pieces of the puzzle that form the foundation capable of consistently producing exceptional high-quality growth. We believe that this quarter's result, again, demonstrates our ability to execute on this growth strategy. I'll now pass the call over to Luke, who will walk us through the details of financial results, and then I'll share some closing perspectives before we wrap up. Thanks, Patrick. I'll pick up on page four of the presentation. Revenue increased over 32% compared to the prior year period. This was driven by outperformance from the 2020 M&A, strong solid waste pricing, and meaningful volume improvements, both sequentially and as compared to the prior period. 
You can see the trend in volume goes over the past quarters on the chart at the bottom left of the page. And I'll circle back to this chart in a minute. Net solid waste pricing was 4.1%, which was better than what we saw in the prior comparable period and in Q1 of this year. As anticipated, the recovery of ICNI volumes coupled with the inflationary backdrop has continued to provide incremental price support for the year and provides us the confidence to forecast that we'll be able to deliver at the high end of our pricing targets for the year as a whole. Resetting of CPI-linked contracts, which tend to lag actual CPI movements, should also provide broad-based support to pricing levels over the next several quarters. Comparable to what we reported in Q1, elevated commodity prices increased revenue 80 basis points as compared to the prior period. The 6.3% positive solid waste volume increase was 5.1% when excluding the Merck processing contracts in Canada that have now lapsed in Q2. Excluding these contracts, U.S. volumes were 60 basis points better than Canadian volumes, which while a positive data point for the U.S., we believe also speaks to the underlying strength of our Canadian business, considering we achieved these results when most major Canadian markets continue to be faced with pandemic-related restrictions on activities throughout the second quarter. Although Q3 has seen additional easing of COVID-related measures, key Canadian markets such as Toronto continue to face activity restrictions, which will temper the pace of the volume recovery while they remain in place. Although the lag has become longer than we had originally anticipated, the evidence coming from our southern U.S. markets has further reinforced our views that when the restrictions are eventually lifted, we will see a meaningful acceleration of volumes. On this point, I'd remind everyone that the majority of the revenue we derive from the fastest to open U.S. markets, namely those in the Sun Belt and certain pockets of the Midwest, is coming from our 2020 acquisitions. And the outperformance of these businesses is therefore being presented as incremental contribution from M&A as opposed to additional volume growth. I also just want to remind folks about the cadence of our volume growth over the past few quarters. So if you circle back to the volume trend chart at the bottom of the left, I think it's important to highlight that we're just getting back to slightly above 2019 levels. The volume growth is more a function of the easy comps as opposed to real incremental economic activity growth, which we think is there, but not yet fully showing through in the numbers. I highlight this to help provide context for expectations. We were only negative 8% for the low of Q2 last year, and we're actually positive by Q4 of last year. The lows that we're bouncing off are not nearly as low as what some of the others have experienced. So as we talk about the guidance for the balance of the year, I just wanted to remind that context. Moving to liquid waste, this segment showed tremendous growth during the quarter as COVID-related volume declines came back online. The volume recovery was more pronounced in our U.S. business, although the Canadian business recovery was also impressive particularly considering the continuation of the broad-based pandemic restrictions. Similar to our comments on the recovery of solid waste volumes in Canada, we expect improving strength in the recovery of this segment as restrictions in Canada continue to ease. As Patrick mentioned, the negative infrastructure volumes were in line with our expectations and largely attributable to the tough prior period comp. M&A contributed approximately $288 million of revenue during the quarter, about $16 million of which was from new 2021 M&A, with the rollover from 2020 accounting for the balance, which was above our guidance despite the FX headwind from the predominantly U.S. dollar-denominated revenues of these assets. We continue to identify significant incremental growth opportunities within these asset packages and remain confident in the ability to outperform the original pro forma expectations for these deals. FX was negative 6.4% for the prior versus the prior period and about a $25 million revenue headwind versus guidance. You'll recall that our FX impacts are substantially all translational and that for every one point change in the FX rate, our annual revenues are impacted by approximately $24 million. 
On page five, you'll see segment results. Solid waste margins of 30.9% were 10 basis points ahead of the prior comparable period, despite a 65 basis point headwind from recent M&A. Although the net effect of elevated commodity pricing was a margin tailwind, this was more than offset by the impact of higher fuel prices and the strengthening of the Canadian dollar. Excluding these macro factors, we saw strong pricing, cost management, and focus on productivity and asset utilization drive 90 basis points of organic solid waste margin expansion, a result we think is quite impressive when considering rising labor and input cost inflation and the delayed recovery of such costs in much of our CPI-linked revenue base. Liquid waste margins increased 480 basis points, substantially all of which was organic and demonstrative of the operating leverage in this segment. The ongoing volume recovery should provide support for better than mid-20s margins to continue through Q3 before the seasonal step-down in Q4. Infrastructure and soil margins improved 640 basis points sequentially from Q1, despite the ongoing impact of decreased volumes and the change in mix. On page six, you can see adjusted cash flow from operating activities of nearly 160 million. This amount includes 63 million of proceeds from our asset sale. Note that while inclusion of these proceeds seems lopsided for the current quarter, we intend to redeploy these dollars before the end of the year, and therefore the timing difference will be offset by year, year's end. Excluding these proceeds, adjusted free cash flow was $97 million, more than double the prior year and ahead of our expectations on the strength of our operating results for the business and continued rigor around working capital management. We continue to expect the working capital investment in the first half of the year to be recovered in the second half of the year, save for any impacts uh, from second half M&A. As previously discussed, we once again demonstrated our ability to reduce our weighted average cost of debt by refinancing our 8.5% notes during the quarter. Repricing that U.S. dollar $360 million from 8.5% to 4.75% reduces annual interest costs by approximately $17 million. We continue to see opportunities for refinancing and will execute as opportunities present themselves. We deployed approximately $200 million into 15 acquisitions for the first six months of the year, and almost another $100 million into five additional tuck-ins subsequent to quarter end. We think these acquisitions will contribute approximately $130, $140 million in annual revenues and puts us well on our way to achieving the M&A targets we laid out at the beginning of the year, even before considering the impact of Terrapure, which we are on track to close by the end of the third quarter. Quickly on page seven, net leverage at quarter end further improved and we continue to have ample liquidity to support our growth goals while delevering our balance sheet. And as I just said, we continue to assess opportunities to reduce our overall cost of borrowing. On page nine, we've laid out our updated guidance in the form of a revenue bridge. On the strength of the results in the first half of the year, we're increasing our guidance by 100 to $115 million attributable solid waste pricing and volume and assuming commodity prices remain at the current levels. Specifically, solid waste pricing goes to 4%, the high end of our previous range, and solid waste volume goes to the low twos, despite the lingering restrictions in Canada. Commodities add an incremental $20 million on top of the original guide, and the outperformance of the 2020 M&A adds another $20 million. Conversely, with the delays and recommencement of activities, we're now expecting soil and infrastructure to be approximately $30 million less than our original guide. Again, we think this is entirely timing, and when the sector starts back up, there will be meaningful volume gains. It's just that where we're sitting today, it would appear as if the majority of that benefit will be a 2022 event as opposed to 2021. 
We then have the expected contribution from 2021 M&A, which reflects our expectations for the businesses we've acquired to date and assumes tariff here closes October 1st, a date for which we now have a high degree of conviction. The 120 to $150 million presented as contribution from net new M&A is net of the revenue divested as part of the asset sale we completed during this quarter. That takes you to revenue of approximately 5.3 billion, which is presented on a constant currency basis to what we presented our original guide. The last step on that page normalizes for FX, reflecting the actual FX for the first six months of the year and the assumption of a 1.25 FX rate for the second half of the year. From that revenue, we expect to generate EBIT of approximately 1.410, the high end of our margin range, and adjusted cash flow of approximately 520 million, or 530 million on the currency constant currency basis with our original guidance, reflecting a 10% increase over our original adjusted free cash flow guidance for the year. So then lastly is page 10, and we think this page is the most relevant. What we've done here is updated our expectations for our 2021 exit run rate. So if you start with the actual expected revenue to be realized in 2021, we then add the rollover of the M&A we've already done so far in 2021, and this brings you to an exit run rate of 5,550,000,000. So this is effectively what the run rate will look like if we don't do anything else for the remainder of the year. At the beginning of the year, we laid out incremental upside opportunities related to M&A, refinancing, and capital redeployment. Excluding TerraPure, we've basically achieved half of our goals in these areas through the first six months. The last step of $150 million represents the incremental expected contribution if we achieve the targets we laid out for in each of these areas by the end of the year and brings you to an exit run rate of 5.750. From this revenue, we expect a run rate adjusted EBITDA of 1.545 and run rate adjusted free cash flow of $610 million. So while we're not currently updating our guidance for 2022 and 2023, we think this page should help set the stage. If you take the base business organic growth model of mid single digits at the top line, mid to high single digits at adjusted EBITDA and low double digits at adjusted free cash flow, layer in some outsized volume contributions that are expected for 2022, some self-funded tuck-in M&A and continued refinancing, we feel highly confident in our ability to exceed the multi-year growth targets we laid out just six months ago. We will formally provide our 2022 guidance on a subsequent call, but just wanted to provide the stepping stones as we know there have been a lot of moving pieces. With that, I will now turn the call back over to Patrick for some closing comments. I would like to end our call today with an update on our sustainability initiatives. We are continuing to develop the ESG goals and targets that we will disclose in next year's sustainability report. A focus of our report will be our initiatives aimed at reducing or avoiding GHG emissions. One key area is recyclables. Earlier this month, we announced the formation of the Resource Recovery Alliance. This initiative puts GFL at the forefront of the move to extend the producer responsibility, providing producers with the solutions they need to drive higher resource recovery rates. Another key focus is on renewable energy. We have set up GFL renewables as our vehicles to unlock significant value in landfill gas energy projects at 18 of our MSW landfills that we have identified to date, and to accelerate the conversion of our fleet to CNG. All in all, with these trends we are seeing this quarter and the opportunities we see ahead of us, I've never been more optimistic about the future of GFL. I will now turn the call over to the operator to open up the line for Q&A. We will now begin the question and answer session. 
To ask a question, you may press star then one on your touchtone phone. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your headset before pressing the keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble our roster. Our first question comes from Hamza Marazi from Jeffries. Please go ahead. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey, good morning. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, could you maybe talk about directionally how investors should think about free cash flow given the update in given the current update for 2022 and 23, and then maybe just tie that back to the investment thesis from the time of the IPO as well. Yeah, so I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll turn over to Luke. But I mean, high level. I mean, it's, it's you know, I guess the irony of this is. Last year at this time, we were defending a, a short seller that said the business had no free cash flow, and we were, you know, estimating 360 million for 2020 as realized. I think when you look today, um, you know, you know, realizing somewhere between sort of 510 and 520 this year with probably some potential upside to that number, and then you roll that forward into, you know, to a run rate number like we've mentioned of the 610, you know, you know, there's very good probability that we continue growing this business at, you know, double-digit free cash flow growth from there. So, I mean, you're looking at somewhere between, you know, 675 and 700 for 2022. And then, you know, when you think about 2023, you're going to be growing at double digits again from there. So I think, you know, fairly conservatively, you get you get free cash flow in, in 2023 to sort of, you know, mid-800s. And I think, you know, that exceeded, you know, what we had anticipated at the time of the IPO. But, you know, as the piece of the puzzle continues falling in place, this is really what, you know, the free cash flow was driving the business. Yeah, I would just add, Hamza, that, you know, the numbers Patrick's saying isn't sort of the, the official guidance for next year, but rather just you lay out the operating model on our, on our exit run rate. And that's the math, you know, that you get even before considering some of this incremental self-help opportunities we've identified within the base business, which could be quite sort of meaningful. So I, again, I, I think we're at a very unique inflection point where we start leveraging some of the investment and the capital structure, and you're just going to really see that conversion of what was, as a percentage of revenue, a, a mid to high single digits, really you know quickly start approaching the low than the mid teens. And then converse or similarly at the EBITDA line, you know, you can take what was a sort of high mid to high thirties free cash EBITDA conversion into free cash flow is going to go to low forties and then to high. And I mean, I, I think we're just going to keep laying out the building blocks so the folks understand because I think we're talking about a free cash flow CAGR, you know, north of 20%. 
and you know, I realize there's there's a lot of moving pieces and get there, but you know, that's the the story that we we want folks to keep sort of focusing on, um, because we we believe that that's highly compelling. That's uh, that's great, uh, and then. Just uh, the second question is just on GFL renewables. Could you maybe talk about the strategy there? Are you separating that business out? Just any broad thoughts on uh, long-term strategy there? Yeah, so I mean, particularly over the course of the last six months and particularly with the increased value of the RIN credits, um, you know, we have significant uh, cubic feet of gas coming to our landfills and and you know when we've done a study on this really over the last six months and you know it's sort of bubbled up for a lot of other companies in the industry that i think are a little bit more mature than us you know we have 18 landfills today that we have an opportunity um to basically make rng um when you think about that you know i just you know we sort of just gave high level numbers what I'm talking about now would be all in addition to. Today we have, you know, at today's wind pricing, about $175 million of gas that could be sold at today's wind pricing. Um, you know, our perspective is that, you know, this gas could add 75 to $100 million of free cash flow over the sort of next couple of years because what we would do is, is we would partner with, you know, some, you know, there's two companies where in – dialogue with today to, to build out this infrastructure at our facilities um, and it would be with a fairly minimal capex spend. I think the other thing we would do um, is we would hedge out the you know the, that wind value over 20 years um, and sign off take agreements with some others. Now that comes at a at a discount to where the winds are currently trading at today but it takes out a lot of the volatility um, out of the wind values. So, you know, when we look at that, I think that 175 is going to be some economic split with the developers, plus then you got to discount it back a little bit because we would enter into, you know, a hedge or, or a pre-sale contract for 20 years with an off-take provider. So at the end of it, you know, we think there's probably 75 to $100 million of free cash flow that comes back to us without not a lot of volatility. So it's a big opportunity. I'm also separating it out. Um, you know, there's been some recent transactions where uh, there's been some renewable fuel plays, and, you know, these businesses are trading at, you know, 40 to 50 times EBITDA. And, you know, I think from our perspective, you know, yes, it'll be a nice free cash flow generator, but, hey, if it's a way to unlock value because some of these other players that are in the business want to come in and pay us a big check to, to, to buy the rights to that fuel, um, you know, there's, there's billions of dollars sitting there under our nose potentially, and, and we just wanted to have that in a separate vehicle. You know, and then the other big benefit from an ESG story is, you know, with as we develop these plants, we'll be able to fuel 100% of our vehicles with gas that we capture in all landfills, which we think is a, is a great story as well. So, um, you know, put all that together, we think this is a very large opportunity. And all added it to the plan that, you know, Luke just laid out. Good. Got it. Uh, just last question. I'll turn it over. I, I know you talked about M&A this year, but any thoughts as to the longer-term pipeline, you know, specifically uh, out of the private company revenue that's out there? Uh, you know, everybody has their own estimates what that number is in U.S. and Canada, but do you have a sense of what percent of private company revenue fits your book of business today? 
in, in you know you can answer it however you want uh, in in the U.S. or and Canada. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, where we sit today, the M&A market is extremely active, and you know I think we're fortunate in a few markets where we've become the acquirer of choice because some of those competitors. Um, you know, our family businesses that fit very well with us and sort of our culture, but they also fit from a perspective that, you know, given the, the, the length of the DOJ processes that people have been going through um, as they try to get deals approved, um, you know, has led to some delays. And, you know, we were part of that on the ADSWM transaction, and now Republic's gone through a few with, with um, you know, their recent acquisitions. And I think there's some sellers that are, concerned about where capital gains are going and, and that position is very well because it's some of the markets where, you know, we don't think we have a very difficult time getting through DOJ and that's made us an acquirer of choice for some of those businesses. But I think it will be an outsized year. But I mean, when we look at our pipeline today, you know, over the next sort of, you know, 12 to 16 months, I mean, you know, from, from our perspective, there's, there's easily another, you know, 500 to a billion of revenue that we can get our hands on you know, relatively seamlessly over over that period. Great. Great. Thank you so much. Our next question comes from Michael Hoffman at Steeple. Please go ahead. Hey, thank you very much. Um, this is a little bit in the weeds, Luke, but uh, what's the quarterly contribution of Terrapure for the fourth quarter so we get that progression right? Yeah, so, so Michael, what we've modeled in as of now is about 80 to 90 million dollars of revenue and the reason that's going to be arguably a larger range than normal is on the basis that with the reopening in Canada I think we're going to see a bit of a shift in the typical seasonality pattern that one would expect with delays so there's a bit of a moving target there uh, but it's around that 80 to 90 million at the top line is what we've included and keep in mind it's at a lower margin than the blended, you know, what we underwrote for the business as a whole, just again, because the, the typical sort of seasonality pattern in, in Canada. So it's in the low 20s as opposed to that high 20s that we expect for a full 12 months of tariff year. Okay. That helps a lot. Thank you. And then when you think about your comment on Canada and this sort of progressive reopening, but you also have a, a seasonal issue, um, you know, again, how do we think about being back to even 2019 levels, what, what's your sort of sense about the timing of that relative to Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, you know, vaccination rates are bad. I, mean, I think that the full reopening plan is planned for, you know, phase in through September and November. And when I say that, it's really sporting events, you know, it's, office buildings, it's schools, et cetera, which have been shut for a long period of time. And I think if you see all the guidance that everyone's put out across Canada, it's now, okay, we've got to live with the virus, and they're going to phase that in between September and November. I mean, we're getting pretty close to 2019 levels today, as Luke mentioned you know, earlier in the call. So I think we turn positive, um, you know, start by the end of the year, and then certainly going into 2022, we'll be back to pre-pandemic levels. Okay, that helps too. And then on the renewables business, and then winds are at a little over three dollars right now. Long-term average is sort of a buck fifty to two. 
is the intention to sort of hedge down into that long-term average, and that's the that's the point. You're not introducing another point of volatility in the model. Yeah, that's my perspective, and you know, particularly, hey, if we look to lock in probably. 65% of that, so we don't get volatility on 65% of the rain. And then, you know, the other way was we'd have a natural hedge internally because we would take a third of that fuel to fuel our trucks. Um, so we'd be virtually 100% covered. Okay, that helps on that. And then on the EPR program, um, can you talk a little bit? You know, that's a, a unique issue relative to the United States. We do it at a state level. I doubt it ever happens at a federal level. So what, what is a particular strength to GFL given this national rollout, the stewardship programs, buying in the, the nonprofit? What, what, what do all those combine to create as a natural, within your natural strengths, a, a competitive advantage? Yeah, so if you look at it today, British Columbia was the first province to enact it. Um, we currently manage that program for producers and for the province. I mean, we have a lot of experience, firstly. And I just think, and this is dealing with municipal curbside volume, so we're not talking about the ICI sector here. And today, the producers pay 50% of the cost of the recycling of those materials. That is moving to 100%, and they are responsible for the actual collection processing, and the municipalities actually have to opt out. So I think, you know, the value we bring is, you know, I think our asset base, given the amount of collection contracts we already have in Ontario, layering on together the processing facilities we already own, and then coupled together with the experience we have in BC, and then, you know, buying the, the CSSA, which actually has the, the, the regulatory reporting and compliance tool. So you put that all together, you know, I think it's a, a very compelling offer for, for producers. And, you know, at the end of the day, Ontario is moving away from a single model to a multiple pro model, and all the pros are going to have to work together. So, you know, we think us working together will give us the right seat at the table to structure all these contracts properly and, and utilizing our assets um, to the best of our abilities. Okay. And then um, within the context of the free cash flow outlook, um, all of the numbers you're giving are still sort of around a high 30s cash conversion of your EBITDA. So what's the prospect of moving the conversion ratio as well, not just the overall growth of it, but moving the conversion ratio back you know, up into a mid-40s or better level? Yeah, Michael, I think naturally – you know, the, the conversion improvement driven by the margin improvement that we're talking about is going to fall through. But I think where you're going to get the most torque, and it's something we've spoken about before, is by leveraging that interest line, right? So if you think about the sort of 300 million-ish interest line that's currently in my free cash flow walk, pivoting into next year, I mean, we really turn into the self-funding model, and you start leveraging that line. And I think... It, it's through that that if that if that represents sort of mid single digits of our of our revenue today, you know, as you grow thereafter, you're going to really see that sort of number, you know, getting leverage off of that. So as we said before, the plan was, you know, from 2020 IPO year to 2025, we thought we could take at, at a percentage of revenue up from high single digits to sort of mid teens, and if you roll that into the EBITDA conversion ratio, it's taking from that mid-30s to high 40s. So, you know, we think that we're demonstrating that, and you're going to continue to see that. But the, the, 
the capital structure component of it, I think, is a unique opportunity for us where we're at in our path that's going to, you know, provide extra torque at that, at that conversion ratio. Okay, and, and to put that in context, the peers are 2 to 3% of revenues is their, is their interest expense. You're higher than that. And this is an absolute dollar reduction in it or an accelerated growth of the revs and therefore the compounding to the profit? Well, the latter in the near term and then the former in the longer term, right? As you, as you, as you get beyond sort of 2023 and you start having, you know, an excess free cash flow thing, that's when I think you actually start reducing the quantum of the dollars. But in the nearer term, we have just leveraging the fixed cost, the, the fixed amount of dollars. Okay, thanks. That's great. Thank you for taking the question. Our next question comes from Walter Spracken from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Good morning, everyone. Uh, uh, I'd like to come back to the landfill to gas conversion, Patrick. Uh, you, you mentioned that you're at one, uh, you know, opportunity right now of 175 million, but the ability to grow significantly beyond that. Can can you give us a little bit of sense of of what it would take to grow, what level it could get up to? And I think you said a modest capex spend. A little bit more uh, elaboration on on uh, on the capital required to get up to a, a higher run rate on your landfill to gas conversion. Yeah, so I think when you look at it today, there's what I said is there's, there's roughly $175 million today at today's win pricing. You know, give or take, there's probably some more, so I'm being conservative on that. The question is, is you know, we would, our perspective is today we're going to joint develop them. We're not, not going to develop them on our own. I think our time to realize those dollars would just can be quicker doing it with someone that knows how. So we're going to give up some of the economics of that fuel to somebody else on a revenue sharing arrangement. Um, but if you look today, today you can sort of, you know, look, lock in some of these forward gas contracts and effectively hedge out the win, you know, at somewhere between a dollar eighty and two dollars. So you know, take a third of that off, and then the revenue share. I think you know you get to somewhere between seventy-five and a hundred million. I think the total capex spend to do that uh, portion of it would be one twenty-five to one hundred and fifty is is the rough number. Um, the interesting part is if you enter into these these hedges that we're contemplating doing, um, or these off-take agreements, we would be signing these off-take agreements with an investment-grade uh, utility. Um, we could get investment-grade bonds to basically finance 100% of the, of the build-out if we did 60 65% of the off-take with them. So I think from an equity perspective, it, it's very minimal, and obviously from an IRR perspective, it's, you know, 40 plus. I mean, I don't think there's a better use of capital anywhere today. Um, so that is that is what's going, and that's why I sort of use the number of 75 to 100 over the next sort of two to two and a half years. That's great, and and, and dovetailing that into uh, non-core operations, you you, do, you made a divestiture uh, just recently. Um, are there other divestitures that you could then? deploy into some of your core areas to frame out how much of non-core are you currently looking at or could possibly look at? And, and would landfill to gas conversion be, if it gets big enough, and would you look at that as something to spin out um, and redeploy into some of your core, is that, or is that something you want to kind of keep in-house? You know, from my perspective, I'm a shareholder first. You know, my 
priority here is to make money. I'm the single largest shareholder. We kept it separate for that reason. I mean, these renewable plays, like I said, you know, there's been a recent one that's just, had, you know, come out with $40 million of EBITDA that's gone public at a $2 billion value. There's one recently in Canada that I think it had 7 or $8 million of EBITDA, and it's trading at a billion-dollar value. You know, we're going to have 75 to 100 sitting in here, and, you know, I think if someone wants to pay us, you know, multiple billions of dollars, I mean, we're happy to take that money and, I think we'd make a lot of people happy with the deleveraging story, maybe some form of dividend or, or distribution. Um, you know, but that's all we got. So I don't know why we just keep it. I mean, you know, I mean, think these businesses are trading at 25 to 30 times free cash flow. So, you know, potentially could create, you know, three plus billion dollars of value um, over the next little while. So one way or another, you know, we think it's going to create significant value, whether that's kept internally or whether, you know, longer term, we, you know, we sell the rights to, the, to that to that gas to someone that's, uh, you know, got a crazy multiple in the, in, in the public markets. And, Walter, the, the, the gas component aside, just the broader uh, redeployment of capital or, or non-core, at the beginning of the year we said there was 50 to $100 million of potential sort of asset sales to complete. What we did in Q2 uh, was about $50 million U.S. that we sold. Uh, what we've put in the incremental upside opportunities in terms of the guide is just that remaining 50. So saying that, you know, we still think there's in this year $100 million in the non-core that we're going to sort of execute on and take those dollars to sort of redeploy into other higher growth and return initiatives. Yeah, I think that's a conservative number as well. So. You know, you'll probably see us uh, do a little bit more than, than what we put in the guide on that front. Yeah, it sounds like a good optionality for sure. Uh, appreciate the time as always, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Walter. Thanks, Walter. Our next question comes from Kevin Chang from CIBC. Please go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I know you're not officially adjusting your, your, your 2022 and 2023 targets, but, but if, I, if my math is correct, I think you're implying something like a low 20%, 27% EBITDA margin out in 2023. But just given the, the, the 2021 update, which kind of gets you, you know, almost a 27% already, just, just wondering how you think of the cadence of EBITDA margin expansion over the coming years here. You know, do, do you see a higher uh, upside, you know, relative to maybe what you saw six, you know, six to seven months ago when you put out, put out that outlook initially? Yeah, I think from our perspective, you know, we're taking the under under promise and over deliver approach. And, you know, I think what we talked about at the time of the IPO, I think we're, you know, probably a year ahead of plan on terms of you know margin expansion. But uh, you know, certainly, you know, our plan is to continue expanding margins and, as Luke said, get you know move somewhere between 28 and 29 percent um, as we move out into sort of 2023. Luke, feel free to type in. Yeah, Kevin, what I'd say is like the, the quantum of the margin expansion, you know, period over period last year was sort of unique, you know, coming into this year, you know, the idea was to take it up to high 26s, you know, 26.7, 26.8, I think was the guide. I think you're right. There could be a path to doing a little bit better than that, which is then setting you up next year. Um, I think what you'll see in the guide when we talk for 2022 is, you know, if we're able to battle these, cost inflation this year without having the benefit of this 
the CPI resets, right? Because again, that's really going to be a 2022 benefit. So we're eating it for the first two or three quarters of this year before we get the benefit. That's going to likely probably add even more. So, you know, I think you're right in thinking about the original target has probably now been accelerated. Um, the exact timing and new sort of goalpost, you know, you'll have to sort of t- stay tuned, but I think you're thinking about it in the right, in the right context. Okay, that, that, that's helpful. And, and then, you know, as you sit here today, you're obviously punching above or you have a schedule, as you, as you mentioned, Patrick and Luke. You know, can, can we just get an update on when, when you think cash taxes start flowing into you and then, and then with this accelerated free cash flow generation, you know, does that change your priorities? Do, 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 do you push more of that into to M&A? Does, does deleveraging become more of a priority with, with this excess free cash flow here? Just, just wondering how you, how you think about that. I'll touch on the cash taxes quickly, then Patrick speak to, you know, excess cash flow, um, you know, considerations. On the cash taxes, look, you know, it's largely the, the growth in the U.S. business is uh, what's going to drive the, you know, the cash tax payments starting. And as of now, that's sort of a little bit in 2024, and then you, you get into, uh, you know, more of a full payer in 2025 and then a real full payer in 2026. But that's absent continued strategies to sort of mitigate that, which we're constantly evaluating. And certainly the incremental deployment of capital to M&A helps with that. So, uh, Kevin, to your point, I think, yes, on the base plan, the outperformance is accelerating that. However, the counter is, you know, excess outperformance in M&A deployment, which I think kind of provides a bit of a sort of buffer. Um, so we continue to evaluate. I think the holding the 2025 as the year still sort of holds true, um, but know that we are, you know, actively engaged and continuing to be as strategic there as possible. In terms of what we do with the excess free cash flow, Patrick, I'm not sure you have sort of commentary around that. Yeah, I mean, I think from our perspective, like like we've always said. We're going to continue deploying capital into smart, accretive M&A. We think, you know, where we are in our growth cycle, that's going to continue to be, you know, prevalent. You know, as the, as the free cash flow really starts building between 2022 and 2023, I think, you know, you're going to move to, you're also going to move to sort of a dividend policy, um, you know, when the when the TEUs come off and, you know, you're going to put it sort of, you know, back to a nominal dividend as some of those TEU interest payments go away. And then sort of coupled together with a share buybacks at some point. But, you know, I think there's a lot of M&A and a lot of great M&A that can still be done at, you know, significantly lower values than we're trading at today. So, I mean, I'm not of the mindset today to buy back our own stock at significantly higher value than I can buy some high-quality assets privately today for. I mean, over time, that's what's going to create a lot of value for us. I mean, we've been doing this for 14 years. Like I said, all I want to do is, you know, take my 800 to billion to a billion of equity in my options that I have, um, and continue just, you know, driving the value of those forward. I mean, if you look at the the recent output plan that the NEO signed up for, I mean, you know, no one is getting anything until you know the stock, you know, clears through 50 and then clears through 60 dollars US. So, you know, that is our conviction around, you know, what we believe, you know, the equity value of this business is going, which is, you know, 
almost 2x where it is today. So we are uh, very sort of comfortable in the plan that we've laid out. And, you know, I think from our perspective, just getting each and every one of your building blocks about how we're going to get there. I think it's been six quarters of us, you know, articulating exactly what we were going to do even at the time of the IPO, living through COVID and where we are today. Um, you know, we'll just con- continue delivering and executing on that plan. And, you know, eventually we're going to fill up the bus with investors and, you know, that'll start driving things forward and getting this trading where we all believe it will be. I appreciate taking my question. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kevin. Our next question comes from Mark Neville from Scotia Bank. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Good morning, Mark. Um, maybe for, morning. Um, maybe first for for Patrick. Maybe just going back to the renewable opportunity. Um, you maybe just walk us through sort of timelines and sort of milestones to watch for in terms of you know signing up developers or uh, partners. Uh, maybe just help us with that. Yeah, so we're well along the line, and I think the the first engagements will be signed sort of in the next, you know, four weeks. Um, and then, you know, you're basically between sort of 15 and 16 months out to, to to build some of them. Some of the facilities are already built. They just need to be modified because they've been used for co-gen and power. So I think, for, you know, conceivably we can start seeing the realization of some of the dollars going into early 2022, but... You know, then seeing the real dollars as we get into later 2022 and starting into 2023 through to 2024. Thanks. Um, maybe, Luke, just, uh, just a point of clarification on the CapEx. Um, it sounds like gross and net for the year will sort of net out to the same number if you can sort of spend all that money. But um, maybe just give us uh, – maybe just help on the guide for the CapEx fund for the year. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Mark, so the – you're right. It's you know the proceeds from disposal are going to offset any incremental spend. So if you think about the original guide, it was sort of a 510 number with the M&A. There's another sort of 10. So maybe you think about it as a net 525. To the extent we can redeploy the capital this year, you know we'll be sort of doing so. But we're going to average out to a net number of 525. I mean we won't you know we'll only spend proceeds. Um, to, to push investment above and beyond that. So the, while the gross number could be, you know, north of that towards, so we say 600, we'll we'll make sure to manage to that net number of the 525. And it's dependent on how quickly we can deploy some of this capital uh, into a whole host of growth opportunities we've identified um, in, in the existing base business and, and net new things like the landfill gas that Patrick's talking about. Got it. Thanks for taking my questions. Our next, com- our next question comes from Jerry Ravitch from Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Hi, this is uh, Adam on for Jerry today. In addition to landfill gas, you folks have a broad set of ESG opportunities. So just wondering if you could help me think about the annual CapEx associated with green initiatives. And is it possible to break that out between landfill to gas, recycling, and any other key initiatives? Yeah, so I mean, we don't we don't separately break out a, a bunch of our um, ESG type initiatives. I mean, that all gets sort of modeled in our, our maintenance and, and growth capex for the year. That sort of sits at around 10%. But I think you know realistically where we're sort of sitting today is you know we're deploying anywhere on a given year roughly 50 million dollars on you know recycling type initiatives. Um, a year ago it was 
closer to 100 just because we had a large organics build out and a large recycling facility. But I think, you know, 50 today is, is probably a realistic number that we're using um, as we've developed those over the last number of years. On the landfill gas, like I, you know, I said, I think our spend is going to be somewhere between 125 and 150 to, to capture that over the next um, 24 months. But you know, given these creative way to finance it with these um, investment grade type bonds, with these offtake agreements, you know, from an equity perspective, it, it shouldn't eat up any. And from an IRR perspective, you know, I don't think we'll find something that can produce any IRRs that are much sort of higher than that internal opportunity. Okay, great. That's really helpful. And then other solid waste peers have talked about gradually shifting their index price contracts to water, sewer, trash away from traditional CPI. I was wondering if you could provide any color into the makeup of your index contracts and if you see that evolving uh, from current levels. Yeah, Adam, it's Luke. Yeah, Luke. Uh, yeah, what I would say is we welcome the shift, but our very early days in our personal sort of participation in that. So if you look today, we have roughly uh, $800 million, most of which is in residential, but you also have some in, in Merck processing, landfill and transfer, that's tied to a CPI type index. Um, very little, de minimis of it is tied to one of the, what I'll call better indices, like sewer water main or utility, or some of the others that the, the majors in the industry have, uh, you know, been converting to. Um, we are, you know, supportive of the change and think it does better reflect the cost structure of these businesses, but we just see that as opportunity today because we are still sort of pegged to the, the old way, if you will, of sort of CPI. But that being said, we think even the CPI-linked contracts are going to provide a very nice pickup, you know, for the next, call it four to six quarters as those things sort of reset. I mean, I think the print in June in the U.S. was north of five, in Canada sort of uh, mid-threes. And I think as, as we now get the resets, a lot of which happened in the back half of the year, we're going to enjoy that benefit. Um, going, but I think longer term, pivoting and migrating our portfolio of um, you know index-linked revenue to these higher indexes is just an even larger opportunity um, that that that's out there for us. Great, thank you very much. Our next question comes from Tim James from T TD Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. Good morning. Um, I just want to go back um, on the question, Patrick, here on your comments regarding kind of the, the change in revenue guidance and where some of that originated from. It was I correct in understanding um, that the, the solid waste impact on guidance is, is primarily originating from from uh, acquired businesses and, and the assets in, in the Sun Belt in particular? No. No, yeah, I think Luke made the, yeah. yeah, what we what we tried to break out there was, you know, the the pieces of the outperformance. I mean, what we're saying in the base guide, we're taking up price. Before we said price was sort of going to be, you know, three and a half, and take that up to the high end of the range. We're taking up volume. Before we said volume would be like, you know, sub one. Now taking that up to sort of low twos. And then the other piece of volume is in the M&A bucket, the rollover, but now saying 
the volume experience we have in that rollover M&A is greater than, than thought. So that's coming up again by another sort of point to two points. So I think it's broad-based across all of the buckets um, as opposed to saying, you know, the, the new M&A. The new M&A was that separate bucket if you look at the bridge. Um, so I, I think all of the revenue drivers are sort of coming up. Sorry, commodities was the last one I didn't mention. Um, and, you know, in, in, the, in the quantum that, you know, I just articulated. Okay, that, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, and then yeah, I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit about what you're hearing from uh, your construction project customers in particular in terms of, of getting back online. Are there any notable and remaining impediments to returning to normal levels of activity in the in the back half of the year? Again, not notwithstanding, I guess, any retrenchment in, in reopenings. Um, and maybe in particular, the lower uh, volume soil remediation customers, um, a bit of an update there. I know that's continued to be slow here in, in the second quarter. Yeah, so I think it's coming. I think everyone is highly encouraged. Final restrictions came on. I mean, this is really an Ontario business for us. I mean, it's leveled to you know, significantly GTA, and I think as most of those restrictions came off at the end of June and beginning of July, people are now ramping back up to, you know, but they do take a few months to get these sites ramped up, just given they've been, you know, so, so that's why I said, Luke, I think the, what Luke said earlier was that the bulk of this is the real upside we're going to get is for 2022. When I look at the amount of contracts we've bid and the guys that are talking about going, you know, as early as August and as far out as sort of earlier next year, I mean, there are some significant projects and, I mean, tens of billions of dollars that the provincial government has is, is canvassing now and looking for work to be done. So all of that's going to come. I just think, you know, like, like we said, it, it was the slowest to wind down and it's the slowest to sort of pick back up. We now have visibility on what's going to be bid, and I think you know 2022 is is going to be a, a very very big year for us. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much, and uh, congratulations on a, on a good quarter. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Tyler Brown from Raymond James. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Morning, Tyler. Hey, sorry, I got a, I got a call waiting right whenever uh, I turned over. But, hey, um, I know the call's been long here, but, Luke, on, on slide nine, I really appreciate it, but I want to make sure that I have it. So of the incremental 110 to 115 in solid waste, only 20 of that is from commodities, and the rest is just kind of core, a core delta. Yeah, that's right. So, sorry, if you think about what we said at the beginning of the year, year over year, the original guide provided plus 10 a commodity. Based on what we've seen throughout this year and now the expectation for the, for the balance of the year, saying there'll be another sort of plus 20 on commodity. And again, while that's muted compared to what others may be sort of saying, you got to remember that, you know, for every, every dollar the commodity goes up, I give sort of, you know, 40 cents of it back to the guy. And so I, I, I'm getting less of an impact as I move. So there's $20 million macro commodity. The rest is really outperformance on price and volume. Okay. And on the price and volume, I'm assuming that's largely a positive delta in the U.S. I mean, it sounds like you have pretty reserved comments on Canada. I mean, it's... I continue to have reserved comments on Canada, but the opening guidance was also reserved on Canada. So it is positive in both. 
particularly on the sort of pricing, moving both of those up to getting to, you know, a higher number than in the original guy. But yes, it's the U.S. business for which we are more, have a better line of sight because, again, our Canadian government seems to be a little bit more uncertainty in terms of timing. Yeah, okay. And then, so on the free cash, and I just want to make sure I've got this because I'm a little confused. So you booked the $50 million of asset sales in the quarter. That is in your guide, correct? The $50 million is really just going to be an offset for incremental capital, growth capital that we'll redeploy. So I have it in there today because by the time I get to year end, I'm probably going to have redeployed those dollars, and I want to get to that net normalized F, uh, CapEx of 525. So by the end of okay. the year, if I've spent 585, I've only done spend that extra 60 by virtue of having those proceeds. So it kind of creates a wonkiness for this quarter individually. I'd back it out for this quarter, but no, by the time I get to year end, I'll have deployed it, and therefore its inclusion normalizes CapEx to that right 525 level. Okay, that, that's helpful. So it's a normalizing on CapEx. So then if we just do the simple EBITDA to free cash walk, I'm assuming it's, again, something like one-four of, of EBITDA. You got $300 million or so of cash. Get your capex of call 550 a little bit more, and then closure post closure, and that's pretty much the walk. Yeah, that's right. Working capital will be sort of net neutral. You got the cash interest in that 300. You got the capex at five and a quarter. Closure post closure in that sort of 55 range, and you know the eight to ten for cash taxes. And you do that walk, and you should get to the sort of you know that 510 520 range. Okay, and then just lastly on the balance sheet, it, is it safe to assume that about half of the refis have been done and the other tranches will just they'll come as the call premiums ease? Um, I'd say about, you know, two-thirds of the 2021 opportunity has been done, and we, you know, are anticipate being able to execute on the full opportunity. And then the balance of the balance sheet becomes 2022-2023 uh, opportunities. Right. Okay. Okay. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Tyler. Our next question comes from Rupert Murr from National Bank. Please go ahead. Good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Good morning, Rupert. Back to uh, to GFL Renewables again. Um, you've got a very well developed organics business. I'm wondering, are you are you looking at any opportunities for conversion of organics to RNG with uh, AD systems? And if you can get some thoughts on what the economics of that might be. Yeah, I mean, I'm not as bullish on the, the anaerobic digester fund, particularly in North America, just because the consistency of the stream that needs to go through those digesters, you know, to run them the most economical. And that's why we've sort of chosen the other path for now. I mean, you know, I mean, we all know we stick in our organic spin from time to time and in, particularly Ontario, and it only gets worse as you go into parts of the U.S. So we're going to stick with that. So no, we're not going to, we're, we're not, we don't, we're not anticipating going into the anaerobic digester business anytime soon. All right, great. Uh, thanks. And, and on the last call, you highlighted some royalty agreements on landfill. Uh, gas operations that are up for negotiation in the next three to five years. How does that play into the strategy? Do you do you buy those out or, or do you need to expire? That's part of it for sure on some of the electrical uh, contracts and which is all sort of well underway and telegraphed in, in that number and 
um, you know, we think that'll happen relatively quickly. Those aren't really money-making opportunities for the actual utility, so um, a lot of them are happy to get out of them as we move through this venture. Oh, great. And then uh, just finally, uh, can you give us some thoughts on the, the timing of investment that's going to be needed to convert to, uh, to CNG vehicles? I'm going to follow the normal course for sure. I mean, what we're looking at doing is sort of just rebalancing our fleets, moving diesel trucks into markets where, you know, from existing areas that don't have CNG, and then we spend our maintenance capex dollars deploying those into areas where um, just CNG makes more sense. So um, I don't think you'll see any outsized uh, capex come from it. It'll just be a, it'll be a rebalancing and shifting of where those dollars get spent. All right. Well, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rupert. Again, if you have a question, please press star then one. Our next question comes from Adam Wyden at ADW Capital. Please go ahead. Hey, Patrick. Uh, congratulations on a on a great quarter. Um, you know, I, I think uh, my my question is more qualitative in nature. If, if you kind of look back, you guys went public. You know, in early 2020. You know, at, at the depths of COVID, I think, you know, you, you had obviously you know, had some challenges taking the asset to market. Um, and, you know, look, you guys navigated COVID extremely well. Uh, you've executed on exactly what you said you would do. You know, you've got the two platforms. You're, you know, divesting assets. Leverage is coming down. The refinance story is happening. I mean, I would say that, you know, for the last year and a half, you've basically delivered on everything that you said you would do and, you know, exceeded, you know, all kind of numerical expectations. Um, you know, that being said, um, you know, the rest of the industry, you know, trades at a, at a substantially higher multiple and, you know, arguably, um, you know, has, uh, you know, what I would argue inferior unit economics on an incremental basis and, you know, from an ROIC and all the rest. And so, you know, you as an insider – um, and the largest shareholder, you know, unlike the rest of your peer group, um, are faced with a kind of a, you know, a, a question or, or, or kind of a, something to ask yourself, which is, you know, uh, the, you know, the public markets are resisting the way you deploy capital, even though it is, you know, far superior to your peer group, and you trade it at a, at a, at a significant discount to your peer group. I mean, at what point do you pull other levers? to kind of tease out the value, you know, obviously your concentrated shareholder base could, could make it easy, you know, to tap the capital markets again. Interest rates are obviously very, very low. Um, you know, it, 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 could this company get re-LBO'd? Could you do a sale leaseback on your real estate? You know, that obviously, you know, industrial real estate is, is at very, very low multiples. I mean, you know, the way we see it, you're trading at like, you know, almost a you know, 10 plus percent yield out a year and a half. And, you know, your real estate's trading at three, your peers are trading at three, you know, how do you think about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, from, from an owner's perspective, from an IRR perspective, you know, the, the types of levers you can pull in it. And at what point you say, look, you know, this is, this is a waste of my time, you know, that this is, this is enough, you know, we're not creating value fast enough from an equity perspective relative to the business performance. Well, there's a lot in, I guess, a lot of uh, statements in the lecturing. So, I mean, I think well, I'll take a stab at it. I mean, I think from our perspective, you know, I think as a private company, we never really have to focus on the mark of the equity, right? And the mark on the equity is really only relevant if you need the equity to sort of fund your plan. And I think at this point, the plan is largely self-funded, so we don't. 
that being said, you know, we do think there's a, there's a very compelling opportunity to own this name at a, you know, relatively inexpensive cost and, you know, correlation to some of the other peers. But, you know, I think we've been at it for six quarters, you know, publicly, obviously a lot longer time privately. And you are right, you know, um, I do am the largest single shareholder. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to keep being the great steward of capital that I've been over the last 14 years. And we started this company with, you know, $250,000 and, uh, you know, built it up significantly over that period. And I think one way or another, the value will be unlocked, you know, at some point. And, you know, whether that's private, whether that's another M&A transaction, whether that, you know, is just continue executing on what we do best, we'll unlock the value over time. And, you know, we're giving everybody the roadmap of where we see the value. And like you said, you look out a couple of years, you know, everybody loves to focus on the quarter. I mean, you can't build great businesses quarter to quarter. You've got to take, you know, a three to four year view on what you're going to do from a plan perspective and a business perspective. And that's exactly what we're doing. And like I said, a year ago, we were defending that the business had, didn't have any cash flow and the equity was worth zero. And I think, you know, we just put our head down, didn't really respond, continue doing that and have grown cash flow at a 40% CAGR ever since. And we're saying we're going to continue growing free cash flow at a 15 20% CAGR here for the next, you know, three plus years. So, I mean, We've given the, you know, there's, I have no interest in saying it other than saying, okay, wait and see. I mean, watch what's going to happen. And if you want to own it today, own it today. If you don't want to own it today, don't own it today. But, I mean, you know, these are, this is exactly what we're going to do. And I think we have a history of, of, of beating expectations. And that's my focus. And like I said, one way or another, no different with the removal side. Hey, we found, you know, this potential gas opportunity that could yield, you know, a significant amount of free cash flow. And we want to lock the value from that, whether that's keeping the cash flow and trading at the 25 to 30 times free cash flow that we trade at today, or, you know, you unlock the value with someone else that's trading at 40 to 50 times free cash flow. So um, we'll do that, and we'll just keep doing the things that we think add value to our own equity. Okay. That, that, that's very helpful. Um, last question. So, so um you know, if you think about the GFL historical strategy, you guys have approached the waste management consolidation um, somewhat differently than your peers, you know, albeit better. You know, you buy a, a very well-run platform. And local, and, you know, you don't buy their trucks, or you sell their trucks, you keep their trucks, you, you do consolidation. You know, it, it might be helpful for me and, and perhaps others on the call to kind of, you know, walk folks through you know, uh, sort of typical tucking transaction to your hub and spoke. So you buy five million of EBITDA, you know, and put it into your system. You know, what multiple of EBITDA is? Because at least from our understanding, and, and I think it might be helpful for others, is that you know that when you buy a platform, you're, you're buying a structure. But when you buy these things and you plug them into your roots, you know, there there are substantial capex savings and substantial GNA savings. So I mean, it might be helpful for me and, and others to kind of say, okay. When we buy things at five or six times EBITDA, it's, it, you really should think about them as a multiple of cash flow or EBIT. So it might be helpful just to kind of lay out how that works because it feels like that's where this business is going. You've gotten those two big uh, platforms. And so, the, you know, the vast majority of your time going forward should be spent on this kind of emblematic transaction. Yeah, because I would say it's no different in Canada. Look at the margin profile of what's happening in Canada. Canada was a low 20s margin business. Today is 
high 20s margin business. And how that happened is we built out the platform across Canada. When you build up the, the platform, you get all the SG&A requirements, the operating facilities, and you have teams in the existing markets, and it's no different than what we're doing now in the U.S. And when you look at what we do is, you know, I say we have a lot of the great pieces of the puzzle already in place. We have an, an amazing um, fixed facility and fixed cost base, and now when we acquire these smaller collection-only businesses that so we can tuck into our existing geographies and utilize that fixed cost base and utilize those post-collection operations like transfer stations, recycling facilities, and landfills, you know, those become highly accretive. Um, and when you can put them on those, those routes on the back of your existing routes, obviously you're eliminating a significant amount of CapEx, and you're just increasing revenue on your existing book of business, which drives higher margins and drives higher free cash flow margins. And that's what we've been doing for 14 years, and that's why our margins have gone from high teens to, you know, moving to high 20s, approaching 30, right? And then for the solid waste business, you know, in excess of 30. So, you know, that, that theme will continue. We won't deviate from that strategy. Um, you know, we, we're not elephant hunters. You know, the lion, I mean, as Luke said, you know, the number of opportunities we've acquired this year, 20-plus. If you look at the relative size of those, again, tiny um, and, you know, we think over time those will add the most value to our equity. Sure. And, 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 and how do you think about CapEx as a percentage of sales from where we are now? Like, where do you think it could be in five years? I mean, if you continue to execute on this, I mean, do you, I mean it, it, your CapEx percentage of sales has come down a lot. I mean, where do you think it could be in five years? Yeah, I mean, we were, you know, early days, we were 15%. And, you know, look, today it's, you know, in the 10 minutes to 11 zip code. You know, where it goes as you keep going from there, I think, you know, could it, could it get to 9 to 10? Sure. I mean, it just depends where we are in the growth cycle and how we want to think about our business four or five years out. But, yeah, so you're right in saying that when you look back in time, if you look at the prospectus, CapEx, we haven't had to make those investments, has come down as a percentage of the overall revenue. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I'll leave you with this. That, that to me, is the most exciting part of this story you know, that, that, you know, obviously you're, you're thinking about it as a business owner and you've got to buy these good platforms and that's why you've historically played for multiples for these big platforms. But, I mean, you know, what you do is you get this great foundation and you bring in these little guys and you don't duplicate the trucks and you get shared procurement. I mean, it feels like you think about where we are in the cycle with these two platforms, you know, it's, you know the, these deals that you're buying in four or five, six times EBITDA, you know, the multiple of EBIT is considerably lower. So, you know, to us, you know, that's that's the most exciting part of the story. So um, I look forward to seeing it, and uh, thank you again for all the hard work and a great quarter. All right, Adam. Thank you so much. This concludes the question and answer session. I would now like to turn the conference back over to Patrick DeVici to, for closing remarks. Thank you, everyone, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you uh, when we report our Q3 results. Thank you. This conference has now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.